This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema. And I'm Joe Newton. Uh, we have a special guest for you, Sally Tisdale. She's written a lot of essays and a lot of books but the book we'll talk about today is Advice for Future Corpses and Those Who Love Them, A Practical Perspective on Death and Dying. Sally, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, could you give us a little background of uh, where you grew up? Oh, I'm from a little logging town in Northern California. Um, my parents were the first people in both families to go to college. So I come from a, a long line of um Working class people, pioneer stock. My great-great-grandmother came over in 1845. And before that, we were working class in the East. So um, hardworking people uh, from small towns, almost completely. Then I was one of those really restless, smart kids who had to get out of town and and, uh, ended up working my way to the big city. (laughs) I live in Portland, Oregon now. And I always wanted to be a writer. Uh, From a very young age, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I didn't really know what that meant. How does one become a writer? Uh, So I just tried it. I just started doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Very self-taught. But you have to, you have to have a job. So um, at that time, you know, nursing just looked like a really flexible a simple way to work part-time. And I, uh, you have to remember the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> you have to remember what the early 1970s were like. Um, so I ended up going to nursing school and um, lo and behold, I really liked nursing. So um, ever since then with breaks here and there, I have continued to work as a nurse, mostly in palliative care, long-term care, um, I'm an end-of-life nursing education trainer, um, and I've always been attracted to populations who see the world somewhat differently than me, so I really enjoy working a lot with people who have dementia. I work with quite a few of my clients now have mental illness and and traumatic brain injury and neurological um, disorders of various kinds, and the very elderly as well. Um, Life looks different from a hundred years than it does Mm. from where I am. So um, I now work in a a home-based palliative care program in the PACE system, which is designed to keep people with medically complicated conditions out of institutions and in the community. What have you, uh, what have you learned from your, your participants? (laughs) What have they taught you? I mean, I'm, I'm so curious to hear stories about how they have touched your life? Well, it's not all positive. You know, um, 
Well, it, it's all positive for me, but that sometimes I'm touched by their sorrows and their regrets. And I do believe that um, how you live your life will show itself in your age and in how you die. Um, I have seen people come to a, a very advanced age, still carrying a great deal of fear and anger. And it shows in their body. It shows in their, it shows in their their posture, it shows in their face, and and it shows in their emotional ability to engage. Um, people who are are um, still sort of stuck in parts of the past, they've really taught me to pay attention to the ways that we get stuck. Um, at the same time, I see people who are so soft and and I've written about people with dementia because some of the softest most open and loving people I work with have dementia and there is something that that um, has been called the tragedy discourse about dementia we we hear a person has Alzheimer's and we say oh how sad what a tragedy but that person might be very happy mm-hmm. they might they might be open and able to love in a way they never have before in their life. And they may literally be dancing through their days. We have, when we project our ideas about illness, aging and death on people, then we miss what's really happening in front of us. So one thing they've taught me is to see what I'm really seeing and not what I expect to see, if that makes Uh, sense. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, you read the chart and it says lung cancer, diabetes, estranged from family, whatever. And you expect to see a certain kind of person and you go in and it's a very different kind of person. And some of my some of my participants, oh, they have they have amazing histories. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why I very rarely, I mean, I'll read the report. And then I forget about it because I've got the new patient. And that's why I feel it's so important, like you're saying, to be there in front of them. Right. And about half of my client base is African-American. Our clinic is in what was traditionally the African-American neighborhood in our city that has now been gentrified. um, And a lot of people have been pushed out. And when I talk to um, the older folks, the folks in their 90s, we have some people over 100. And they tell me what their childhood was like in that neighborhood, what um, both on both sides, it was a very, um, it was a, a wonderful place to live in many ways. And they have very happy memories, but they also lived through very painful, difficult times, legalized segregation and Jim Crow and violence that I have never known. So I am often reminded about how full and complete another person's life is and how different it can be from mine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, when when Barack Obama sent the hundred year birthday letters to these ladies, it was the happiest moment <laughs> <laughs> of their lives. And so, you know, one thing they've taught me is always, always meet people with the same respect you would want your parents met with. Because I I have learned to be very formal with people until given permission to be otherwise. Absolutely, mm. yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I meet my African-American participants knowing they may not have, they may have a good reason not to trust a white nurse and they need to know that I'm going to meet them with respect and listen to them. Mm. So I'm learning, I'm learning every day. 
Mm-hmm. I think I appreciate how you value presence or being present in the moment and uh, being fully there. I think uh, that's really powerful to have that within your practice. And I'm not successful at it all the time. Um, these last 18 months have been, you know, they've been demanding. <laughs> <laughs> yes, oh, absolutely. Um, I am tired of wearing my PPE. And there are times when I find my mind wandering and I have to bring myself back, bring myself back to where I am. Um, it's it's an ongoing practice. That's how we describe our religious experiences, that it's practice or training. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and and so I'm always in that practice of coming to the present. So let's transition to your books. I'm here on your page and I see uh, what is the significance of the dead fly? Um, so I wrote a uh, there's a very famous Buddhist scripture in Zen called Sutra of Mountains and Rivers or Rivers. Yeah, Sutra of Mountains and Rivers is how it's usually translated. Um, and it's about how. It's partly about how the physical world is alive, too, Um, how everything has a spirit of some kind. And that's a very limited explanation of this dense sutra. But um, (laughs) I have I have a cabin up in the woods near Mount Hood. And um, so I spend a fair amount of time in the in the forest and I found myself watching flies and thinking about flies, which are so, you know, they're ubiquitous and they're so common and we don't pay attention to them. But I got interested in flies and I ended up writing a very long essay called Sutra of Maggots and Blowflies, which is based on, on that idea that everything, everything is alive. And flies represent decomposition to us. They represent decay, decomposition, and the way a dead body becomes part of the earth again. Flies are the primary eater of corpses. Uh, so it's a, it's a long essay that's in my book of essays called Violation um, about confronting, it's really about confronting death. Um, as I watch a fly crawl across a window, I'm confronting my own decomposition and death. And what does that mean? What does it mean to see wholeness and spirit in the face of decomposition and death? Hmm. So I've really adopted the fly as a, as a totem animal. And that's, it's also kind of funny because the fly traditionally is Beelzebub's animal. Um, Mm -hmm. Flies are associated with demons, devils, and witches. Um, So I was sort of, reclaiming the fly (laughs) for life (laughs) and they are remarkable they're just a remarkable animal and um i recommend reading more about flies (laughs) so and there's also on my page there's an octopus because they're my favorite animals so 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 (laughs) i can have anything i want on it That's awesome. So your book, Advice for Future Corpses, what, what was the motivation behind that? By the way, By the, way well, the title really caught my attention. That's why I'm, I have to reach out to her. Oh, thanks. And I have to I have to give props to my editor at Tricycle because I had first written a little a little thing about self-care, the wellness movement for mm. Tricycle, in which I said I was basically saying, go ahead and 
do all that namaste you're still going to die and i was um and they called it self care for future corpses so i stole the title um <laughs> but i have been i got trained as an end of life nursing education trainer quite some years ago and um have worked around chronically ill and dying people so i started doing workshops with just lay people um people in my religious community but also um other people in the community of just how do you start looking at the possibility of your own death and what i'm really interested in is not how do you prepare an advanced directive but how do you feel it how do you how do you come to terms with the fact that you're going to die and a lot of the motivation came from the fact that with all my experience i could still feel the resistance and i could still feel the denial and it just never goes completely away there's a little part of me the ego just thinks it's going to live forever cannot believe it will be extinguished that that this will end um so i'm working with that all the time and 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 i could see that with i could see how that plays out when people are dying and families are coming to terms with death. So I came to, I, I have come to believe that we need to talk about death, I say, bluntly, honestly, and often. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of my mantra, blunt, honest, often. We don't do any of those things enough. So um, that's where, that was really the motivation. And, and it was also because I could bring my nursing my writing and my religious practice together into one subject. Um, And the fourth part of my life, which is my friends and family. Because in the last several years, I lost my best friend and I lost my religious teacher. And before that, I'd lost both my parents. So I say that my greatest experience is of having lost people I love. That's what I know most of all, is what it's like to grieve someone you love. What have you learned over the years that you feel is the best practice when talking to someone who is dying? Uh, well, I, I mean, I do go back to honesty. Um, I'm, not, I'm not terribly patient with doctors and nurses who use euphemisms. I think think if a person is dying, you say dying. If a person has died, you say they died. Not they expired, which is like a quart of milk, um, (laughs) or they passed on or passed away. All of those. It's like we lost our dog last June. And when I said to people, well, we killed the dog yesterday, they would look at me like, (laughs) oh, my goodness. But I'm not going to say I didn't put him to sleep. I gave the vet permission to give him a lethal dose of medication. That let's call things what they are. And, and, you know, so I'm all for being very honest. And I find that people who are terminally ill know they're dying. Mm -hmm. They know even if people are lying to them, they know better. And once you lie to a patient, then you've lost trust and you may never get it back. So honesty is important. Another thing I've learned, this is partly from my own religious practice and partly from what I've seen happen if I don't do it, which is I've got an agenda. I've got a bias when I go in that room. There's some either something task I want to accomplish 
or an attitude I want to convey or something. So stop at the doorway and do a self-assessment and make sure I know what I'm carrying into the room. And, you know, really take that moment to slow down um, and to not just go in with a checklist. I want to be able to go in and be surprised. And I'd say one of the things I do the most, um, especially toward the very end of life, is make it normal for people. Make it normal for the family and the caregivers, even if the person is not awake, to be able to say, oh, she looks so comfortable, even though her her breathing is noisy, but that's normal. We see that at the end of life, and this is why. So a a lot of that. Be honest and and be a witness to what is happening, which is we're all going to die. And this is what it's going to look like for most of us. And yeah, does that answer your question? Oh, I think that is outstanding. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking about what you're saying and what every nurse should hear who come into hospice and hear those words and uh, especially the idea, and, and that goes for clergy, it goes for chaplains, it goes for everybody who walks into a patient or participant's residence, home, wherever it is, and leave everything at the door. And that's an important reminder. Well, I don't know if we can ever leave everything at the door, but at least we can be honest about what we're carrying in. Yep. Yeah. Like um I was I saw I saw somebody earlier this week who has multiple myeloma, which is a cancer of the bone marrow, and had developed a respiratory infection. So a pretty serious situation for him, possibly at this time in our lives. Um but I had a lot of other things to do. And I had all and and I'm always meeting people behind the screen now, behind the shield and the mask and the gowns and and I can't touch people the way I used to be able to touch them. So I I come into that room and I know that I have to work hard not to hurry. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I want to take my shield off, because I want to get on with the next thing, because I just I just want to. But he needs all my attention right now. And it may take longer than I expect. And so I'm having a conversation with myself. Slow down, slow down, slow down. You know what? The patients hear that even though they don't hear the words. Oh, yeah. They can tell when you're in a hurry. Oh, absolutely. I worked on an oncology floor for several years. I was a a chemotherapy and um, stem cell transplant nurse. and, And we were taught, we were required by our supervisor to leave a room by saying, is there anything else I can do for you? I have lots of time. I have plenty of time. And the joke was that we'd be walking backward out the door saying, (laughs) I've got lots of time. (laughs) As we were shutting the door behind ourselves. (laughs) But, but, you know, I, I agree with the thought. It's not always... It's not always possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, that will take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, 
please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Berman. You're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Sally Tisdale. In your book, you mentioned that the more we talk about, talking about death more makes us happier. Uh, could you break it down for us? Uh, talking about death makes us happier because we aren't carrying this little secret thing inside us that eats away at us because we know people die. We know we're going to die. We don't know people die. We don't believe we're going to die. There's a tension all the time there. Um, talking about death allows us to be appreciative of what is in a new way. And one thing I one thing I do say in the book is that it allows us to love each other in a new way. You know, when I think of friendships, I think of how we develop friendships and we develop agreements, these unspoken agreements with friends about what we will and won't talk about, how close we'll go, um, where we can poke and where we stay out of. Um, and then when the diagnosis comes along, all of a sudden you have to reevaluate all of that. Um, those things that seemed so important yesterday aren't so important anymore. And maybe the boundaries are going to change. Maybe intimacy is going to change deeply. Um, so we can love each other in a new way when we admit death into the room. We, when my best friend was dying, we had conversations that I just found stunning in retrospect because we'd known each other for 40 years and never had those conversations. But suddenly, close as we were, we were this close. There was no, there was no defending. There was no, no protection anymore. It was just the stark reality of right now. And it allowed me to open my heart to her and I think allowed her to be loved in a way that she had not allowed herself to be loved before. Um, we're always protecting ourselves a little bit from, a little tiny bit from rejection and abandonment. Uh, it's part of the human, part of the human matrix is that we fear rejection. Um, and when someone is dying, we're able to open our heart in a new way and love them fully without that fear of, of rejection that keeps us defensive. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. It makes a lot of sense. And um, so what advice, I mean, would you have for people? Some people, it draws them closer. And like you said, the bonds become much stronger. But we also live in a society that people are scared of death. And when they find out a friend is dying, they disappear because they yeah. feel like they're inadequate. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to be a friend or how to love. Right, right. Well, I mean, if that person, the person who's afraid, asked me for advice, I would tell them to examine those feelings and ask themselves what they really wanted. And people have to do this for themselves. You cannot make a person open up. You cannot make a person drop their 
drop their defensiveness. I think it's a terrible loss if people cannot bring themselves to come closer, but that's their work to do. All I can do is, is invite the conversation, you know? Yeah. Um, usually my concern is with the person in the bed who is dying, whose mm. son will not come visit, you know? And they're very hurt because the son will not come in the room. And so my concern will be with how to help that person accept that loss. Yeah. My son, my son is one of those, you know, I gave him, he, he's never been sick. He hates doctors. He doesn't like to go to hospitals. When I gave him all my paperwork, he refused to read it. He just locked it away and said, I'll read it if I ever have to. And it's like, <laughs> you probably are going to have to. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think that it might be the bravest thing he ever does to come see me when I'm dying. And I want to, you know, I give him props for that because it's going to be very difficult. But if he doesn't, it's his loss. It's really a terrible loss to, you get to do this one time, you know, mm -hmm. when your mother's dying, when your mother's dying, it's the first time your mother dies, it's the only time your mother dies. You'll never get to do that again. Same thing with, with everybody who dies, it's the first time it's ever happened. And it's the only time it's ever going to happen. And it can be profound and it can also be very funny and it can be very joyful and it can be very surprising. But I mean, I'm sure as chaplains, you sometimes find yourself giving, giving solace to the people who can't bring themselves to go in the room. I had an occasion once where I was with a family and of course, the, the the mother was lying in the living room, and she had a son who would walk on by and not even look at her, and just keep walking back and forth, walking back and forth, walking back and forth. And they said, well, Joe, why can't you go and talk to them about that? And I said, I'll try, and sat down with him and more or less asked him, what is he afraid of? And he really didn't have much of an answer. And I said, you know, as, and I don't think I use the same terminology that you use, that this is only going to happen once, but it's a very good uh, reminder for folks. He eventually did talk to her. And it wasn't shortly after that, that she did die. And it was one of those things that she was uh, pretty much probably waiting for. Right. Well, and, you know, I've had people say to me, well, she doesn't seem like my mother anymore. I don't want to remember mm. her this way. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and all I can say is, well, she is still your mother, and this is how she is right now. So we can either be present with what is, or we can or we can turn away from what is. Um, yeah, I think it's it it is a loss that some people prefer to to confronting their fear. And the fear, of course, is about their own death. Mm. It's not just it's not just that my mother looks different and smells funny and makes funny noises and I don't know what any of it means. We can fix all that, you know. Mm -hmm. We can educate people about what they're seeing and hearing. What you can't entirely fix for another person is the fear that they have of their own extinction. That is a journey each of us has to go on ourselves. 
But I think that is where the hand-holding comes in. I like uh, what you did with your son and preparing him uh, because in that process you're teaching him how to love you when that moment comes. This reminds us of our conversation on uh, last week with Dr. Lydia Dangdale. She says she asks her patients, who do you want to be there when you're dying? And then the next question is, how are your relationships with those people? And I think when the relationships are stronger, uh, even if they are afraid of being in that room, in most cases, at least 80 to 90%, they will be there. And that is the power of, you know, right. teaching one another. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the middle of co-teaching a class for members of our religious community to become spiritual companions to each other in, mm. in terminal illness and death. Um, so uh, these are people who know each other through their, through their religious community and are agreeing to take on a much more intimate role with each other. Um, so some of it is how do you take a person to the bathroom and what does it feel like to help a person go to the bathroom? And some of it is how do you provide encouragement and support at the bedside when a person is feeling afraid? So there, we're covering a lot of that ground. One of the questions we're talking about is how are you the gatekeeper mm. for the people that the person in the person who is dying, they want some people at the bedside and maybe they don't want some people at the bedside. Yeah. Or you see someone come to the bedside who is not helping. Um, and how can you be the gatekeeper for what is useful and helpful? So I'm, I'm curious what you guys think about this. One thing I try to remind families is that you should say goodbye one time. Oh. You, don't, you don't engage in a dramatic closure every time you leave the room mm. or, or come back every three days and say, oh, you're dying and I'm so sad. I'm going to say goodbye. And then, <laughs> you know, I see, I see people kind of repeating the drama and I, I've noticed that people who are dying, they really do need to finish some things. So they say goodbye to their sister and they're done. They don't want to come back to that moment. They've got something else they need to do. Mm. So to be the gatekeeper there to help direct families to when it's time to go is also very tricky. I've witnessed uh, numerous occasions where the patient is very good at that, where they will just shut everything off. And you know that they're still there. You know that they're very well aware of what is going around them, but they just don't want to and deal with it anymore. And I just, I think stopped. it's an, uh, yeah. And I, and I, I try to inform families that because they are so into themselves at that time, that that's a good thing and it's part of the process of what you're they're going through because they need their alone time. Mm -hmm. And it's significant for them to leave them alone. Right. And, uh, you know, you know your loved one well enough if they need to have nice, quiet music or they need the TV on or they just need complete silence. And, you know, families find that difficult because they want to do something. Right, right. Right. The one of the images I use um, is that we're all we're all walking down this path together and we come to a fork in the road. 
And the dying person eventually starts down the right side and we're all going down the left side. Our, our impulse is to stop at the fork and call them back and say, yep. come with us, you know, <laughs> yep. come with us. And, and maybe for a few steps, they look over their shoulder, but then they turn around and they just keep going and they're never going to look back again. And we have to let them go. And people do get stuck at that fork. They can't keep going down their own path for a while. They need to be reminded that it's time to keep moving. Um, but that image of somebody, I, I've really experienced that in the room of a dying person, that they have turned away and they are going forward on a path that I cannot follow. Uh -huh. And there is, I have no business trying to call their attention back to me. Um, and so then I try to just really quiet down as much as I can and do whatever I need to do in the simplest, quietest way possible and allow that undisturbed time. I agree. People, I think people are doing some really hard work, even if they seem to be unconscious. There's a lot that I've, I've seen it compared to the labor of childbirth. There is there is work involved in dying. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. It takes energy and attention. And, and instead, we're always trying to get them to engage with us in my world, in my mm. space, in my needs. So well, that's 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 what really it turns out to be, that it's all about me instead of about them. Right. And that right. is very hard for us as human beings to uh, – I love the image of the forked road. Uh, I mean, that just – to me, that's an incredible uh, uh, reminder of how it is when someone is dying and trying to share that with a family. I think right. that would be, you know, let them go because that's what you're that's what they're looking for anyway for that release. And you know, we can watch people walk down that road for a really long time, and it's very mm -hmm. difficult for people if, say, it's profound end of life dementia and the person has been nonverbal for months and maybe bed bound for quite some time, you're still watching them walk down the road. It's really hard, but you, you know, it's okay to let go and keep going on your own path at that point because they're okay. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. Uh, I like the way you speak in metaphors because they are so rich. And uh, earlier you mentioned about being a gatekeeper. Uh, in this kind of situation as the patients make that last journey. It just reminded me of an incident um, a few months ago where this patient was dying in a nursing home. Uh, but the daughter and uh, and her husband were always there. Uh, they, it looks like they had put their life on pause to mm. be there as mom died. But mom was hanging on. <laughs> so I get in the room and they're like, is there something you can say? You know, is there something you can do so she can go? We need, you know, we need to move on. But <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So all your metaphors, so the fuck your eyes. <laughs> I'm like, there's not, you know, there's nothing you can do. You know, um, you just let the process take, you know, let mom take her time on this journey. And maybe go take care of your own life a little bit while yeah. that happens. 
That's why yeah. you can go. You don't have to be here if it's now becoming a burden. Right. Uh, you can go. She's fine. She's on this journey and she's peaceful. And right. the hospice team is there to make sure she's comfortable. I'm sure you guys hear this too, but, you know, people will secretly confess to me that they feel terribly guilty because they want it to be over. Or mm-hmm. A, mm-hmm. a person has died and their primary feeling is relief. And that's another thing I can normalize for people is, of course, you're relieved. Of course, you want it to be over. This is really hard and it's inevitable. There's nothing going to reverse it. So can we just, you know, those are normal feelings. Like I say in the book, you will feel everything that that grieving is a state of feeling every emotion there is. Um, Some predominate, but they dominate in different ways for different people. And we all feel Joy, relief, anger, resentment, grief takes all of that in. You brought up the, I, uh, the, the participants in your program, and you spoke of mental illness. And I'm just curious as to how things are dealt with with someone who has a mental illness at an end of life. I mean, I've, I'm, I know I've probably dealt with folks, but I don't know it. You know, it's uh, more than two thirds of our clients have either mental illness, dementia, substance abuse disorders, neurological, cognitive disorders, or more than one of those things. We have a number of people who were homeless who have been brought into our care and they may have a substance abuse issue and an untreated mental illness and cancer. Well, what do you know? Um, so I deal with, I try to meet my, my, my participants with mental illness and dementia exactly the way I meet everybody else, where they are with dropping my agenda, seeing them as they are, um, in the moment, what am I seeing right now? Am I seeing tension? Am I seeing distress or am I seeing, you know, relaxation and happiness and stop, stop projecting onto them what I think. Mm-hmm. Some of my, some of the people I see with schizophrenia are perfectly at ease in their lives as they are. We've, you know, they're they're not in distress all the time. They're okay with who they are. Um, the hardest thing is a practical matter, which is people who are on antipsychotics who get to the point where they have trouble swallowing, and mm-hmm. they can't take their they can't take the antipsychotics, which are really important to their mental stability. And that's a real difficult situation, um, dealt with in different ways, depending on the situation. But we often, we sort of fail to see that coming, that, Mm. oh, this person's not going to be able to take this pill. And if they don't take this pill, they could become flagrantly psychotic at the end of their life. And that's not a good thing. So what are we going to do about it? Um, I just recently said goodbye to a man that I was very... I'm very sad to see go. He was he was kind of the one that I had closest to my heart for a while. A younger man who um, was a lifelong heroin addict who died of liver cancer. And, you know, he the last couple months of his life was a matter of he could no longer go access the heroin. He couldn't get out and go get the drug. So we had to shepherd him through a transition 
to high doses of opiates in order to get him to help him avoid withdrawal and still have pain control. Mm. Um, and some of that was psychological as well, helping him really turn and face what was next in his life. It involved getting him back to his church home. It involved getting him back to his family of origin. Everybody on the team was involved in helping this younger man have a peaceful death. And we did it. We did it. And that was very challenging. So I would say people with, with cognitive and mental health challenges of all kinds, you've got to see that individual situation for what it is. There's no one size fits all approach. There never is. But with mental illness, you have to be very flexible. Thank you very much, Sally. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That was uh, Sally Tisdale. She's the author of Advice for Future Corpses. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. 